On this episode of the Bible Archives, we are going to begin exploring the book called Genesis. And over the next several episodes, we will break down uh, various groupings of chapters and eventually work our way through the whole book. But today, we just want to give an overview. What is Genesis? How is it compiled? What should we be paying attention to as we go through the text? And Genesis is important just culturally because uh, the, the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all utilize the narratives within this text. So I think this is a good place to start. Uh, we're hopefully going to find some interesting things out about Genesis. There, there's more going on in its composition and in its story than uh, we would usually think. And so, Amy, how would you give us the, the one broad uh, line on what's going on with Genesis? Well, Genesis is a creation drama, and there's also some primal evil stories there that make it the idea of order over chaos. And so the reason that we set the Genesis as the first book in the Torah is because it kind of sets the stage then for that entire arc of what the Bible narrative is about, and then about the restoration of creation. So it describes maybe how creation began and then how it can be restored. Yeah, and we'll get into this as we go through the episode today. Um, but we're going to make a, a point that I think we all just need to realize that Genesis wasn't written first, right? So right. the Bible is not in chronological order in uh, the chronology of when it was written. It's in a particular order to tell the story. I, I often use Star Wars as an example for this, right? Episodes uh, one through three they were not created first, but they are the first episodes in the story that help set the stage for episodes four through six, etc. Sure. And so what you're going to see as you go through Genesis, you're going to see this connection to the prophets. And as the prophets talked about this anticipated future hope, uh, what Genesis does is it gives the, what's called the etiology. So the sort of explanation of, of origins and uh, also this teleological vision for what they were talking about uh, when exile was happening and all of that. Um, what you also get is the Jewish people had to make a case for their particular brand of metaphysics. They were trying to say things differently than their neighbors and in the cultures of the day. Well, how do they explain and justify it? Genesis. Genesis is where they start developing, here's what we believe about people, about the world, about God. Uh, and so there's a lot of theology wrapped up in the story. Right? They didn't go and, and write, uh, you know, a systematic theology of monotheism. Right. All right. They, they told stories about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to kind of see that's there, there's an agenda in Genesis that it's trying to say something about Israel's identity. Um, another really important thing about Genesis is that I kind of view it as the prequel to Exodus. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think Exodus mm-hmm. is the is the central narrative for uh, ancient Israel. That's kind of the fulcrum of their story. The fulcrum. Yeah, yeah, and so Genesis kind of is like, so let us tell you how we got here. Mm-hmm. Let, let us set this up for you. Um, so I think Genesis is a really, uh, really good book. Um, it's 
really important in a lot of ways. It's also, it's a role player. I think a lot of people like to go like Genesis is the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, it's important, but it's more of a role player in the narrative to the prophets, to Exodus. Um, and, and, and the whole idea of Genesis is to talk about beginnings, right? Why is the world this way? Uh, and again, we're going to make a case that, well, they weren't there uh, when all of these things happened. They're telling us about them because they're trying to give an argument for something. So why is the world this way? And there's all of this very intentional demythologizing of Israel's specific neighbors, right? Right. Uh, there, there's a lot of rhetoric going on with them. Um, and, and they're trying to counter the dominant narratives of their neighbors. And part of that's for history. They're trying to give uh, a, a, a narrative for their people. The same way like Americans do this with Thanksgiving, with George Washington. Absolutely. Yeah. And and somewhat drawing out of their own culture in the sense that kind of the way we came out of England and became America with our own culture, they were also drawing somewhat out of the Canaanite culture surrounding them. Mm-hmm. And these stories that the Canaanites told, they used those stories and were influenced by those stories when they wrote the book of Genesis, when they started telling those stories. But they were also saying, yes, but this is the way our God looks in that circumstance, different from the way you people worship your gods our god is different and there's a lot of different ways that these uh creation narratives um differ from one another and yet influence one another um so for example there's a couple of different stories one of them is called the enuma elish and that's a babylonian story and that's a creation myth and you'll see a lot of very similar motifs in that story where there's chaotic water or there's wind and air but they differ very dramatically from the biblical story because these are more violent it's about gods and goddesses struggling with one another um their origins of how they were born and these are important to the people in the canaanite culture but with the israelite culture their god or you know god yahweh didn't have an origin didn't have a um causality yeah causality a theogony is what they call it and a lot of the earlier cultures they would have like this is how our gods were born this is how our gods came to be and then this is how our gods formed the world and then this is how they behaved with one another and israel dealing with yahweh told a very different story about a god who ordered the universe controlled the universe and didn't um well they're both they're both etiologies yeah right <clears throat> that's what these cultures are working with at the time. Mm-hmm. What's different about Israel's is what's important. Yeah. Uh, and, and so as we go through Genesis, we're going to see a lot of these comparisons and contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we'll try to bring those up as we go. But that's, that's still the question that we have to ask is, what is Israel trying to tell us about their world, especially in the circumstances they found themselves where they're surrounded by these various tribes and empires like Babylon, Assyria, mm, sure. even Persia as, as, as they begin to develop. Uh, and and how, how does that influence happen? And what's Israel's response? Right? Uh, one of the interesting things about uh, just the Torah and, and the Hebrew Bible in general is that Israel is not the the biggest power by any means oh yeah not by a long shot and yet they are writing very forcefully they're Mm -hmm. telling a narrative very forcefully against their enemies and against their neighbors genesis is a part of that right so before we get into some of those details 
uh, let's just kind of go through what happens in Genesis. What's what's the the table of contents, maybe? So the first chapter of Genesis is maybe one of the more popular. It has these uh, cultural trope lines of Mm -hmm. let there be light and uh, and it was good and things that we refer to a lot. But this whole first section of Genesis is what I refer to as the primordial history, right? And so you're looking at Genesis 1 through chapter 11, and it starts with creation. So what are some things about uh, the the creation narratives, and and I use the plural form of that intentionally, what are some things that uh, are really important there that we can hit on real quick? I think it's important to notice that they seem to be different from one another. Um, some scholars believe that they were written by two different sources, and we can get into that later. Mm-hmm. But that the first story is much more uh, liturgical almost. It's orderly. Yeah. It's stately. And you get more like a basic kind of uh, God did this and it was good. And this was the, the first day, and like morning and evening it's very was poetic. the first day. You could almost say it was, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very poetic, and almost some people think maybe it was like a call and a response yeah. thing that they might have done during a worship of some kind, where the priest might say, "And God said that it was good," and the people might answer it in the evening, in the morning, and it was fourth day or fifth day or whatever which is interesting so that's the first story and then the second story is much more narrative it's much more like an actual story and you see like for example in the first story human beings are created as a group and then that's kind of it there's nothing more to say about them they don't have names they're just told multiply and go like the other animals and things but in the second story it's much more about individuals adam and eve have names they interact with god so we see a difference between the way god interacts with humans and nature and between the two stories one it's a little more separate one more involved yeah more more anthropomorphic yeah uh and um there's that emphasis on the actual human beings and that's going to carry through into the narratives as they go and so you get that's genesis one and two and you get into genesis three and it's almost a continuation of that narrative style doesn't doesn't refer a whole lot back to the poetic creation story it focuses on the narrative creation story uh, and, and things sort of go wrong there in Genesis 3. We're not going to be able to give a full telling right now. We'll get into that when we get to that chapter. Uh, but then the narrative continues with this uh, this sort of prehistory kind of, uh, I'm going to use the word mythology, and I don't mean that in like Greek pantheon mythology. It's mythic in, it's it's not trying to, tell you the exact details of the world it's trying to capture an idea it's trying yeah. to give the the grounds for uh the identity of a people that's a myth and, and every culture has myths it doesn't right. mean they're not true it, it means they're true in a much more uh, profound way than mm-hmm. just historically so then it, that goes into cain and abel and we get this conflict between the two brothers which uh tells us something about the world and about people and mm-hmm. um it also starts setting up the explanation of other things, right? Like, how does how was that city founded? And uh, where did these groups of people come from? Right. And then you get a genealogy after that, which is starting, it's doing more of that explaining. It's more of that etiology. Um, and it just, just through chapter four, you get humanity explained uh, all the way through Cain and, and Lamech. And now you're starting to see a family become a society. Um, 
And a lot of those narratives that we're seeing amongst those people are narratives about their present day situations and realities and, and what they're wrestling with. So, so again, they told stories to help explain those things. Right. We also get the sense of violence is growing uh, in, in Genesis chapter four. And then we get a transition uh, of Genesis chapter five, which the, you get these genealogies uh, several times in Genesis. And you also see them in other books of the Bible. These genealogies are partly just a normal thing in Mesopotamian literary tradition. Yeah. Right? Listing ages, listing connections. But on one hand, the genealogies are trying to tell you something. There are details kind of hidden like Easter eggs in there that they want you to pay attention to. And it's a shame because most... Most Christians, at least today, skip those chapters completely. They seem like they would be boring. <laughs> yes, and they are. They are very boring. Well, they can be until you notice that there's sort of a pattern yeah. to them, which I found interesting. Um, and then you also, outside of the sort of hidden details and the importance of that, the genealogies act as sort of a scene change. Okay. Where, you know, they're saying you had really specific details. Now we're going to fast forward. Here's all this stuff that happened. So it's a way... It, Continuing the story okay. in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then that scene change takes us to uh, Noah and the flood, right? Yeah. Um, and part of the genealogy, you had this 120-year lifespan uh, uh, happen with, with the flood. And you see in the genealogy, well, the, that wasn't the case. So something must have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you are told about the offspring of Noah. You get this reference to uh, ancient heroes right at the beginning right. of Genesis 6, which is uh, one of the most confusing things to scholars <laughs> yeah, is yeah. what is going on there. Um, and and like Amy was saying, you get all of these comparative uh, literary devices to other flo- flood stories that mm-hmm. were very prevalent. Um, and so we'll, we'll handle some of that more when we get to Genesis 6 really important part is what happens with the flood is a response to humanity's violence. And you start getting references of the covenant for the first time. And and you start getting this depiction of new creation. So again, etiological stories of, of the culture, of the world, of humanity, and of Israel in relationship to their God. So then that continues Genesis 9, Genesis 10. You get another genealogy and uh, references to a lot of different people and cultures and even some technology. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you get the Tower of Babel, which again, it's a story that everybody knows. Yeah. And yeah, they think they do. <laughs> and unfortunately, our, our familiarity with that story keeps us from seeing things. You know, familiarity sometimes leads to unfamiliarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of details in the Tower of Babel story um, that is very important for everything that just happened all the way back to Genesis 1. Yeah. It's connecting something. So uh, looking forward to getting to that part. And then from there, the rest of the book, now the, the, the scene changes drastically in that it's not this primordial history uh, more ideological, mythological stories. Now it starts getting into a narrative that our culture is more familiar with, right? Right. Where, where it seems more modern in its style. There, there's mm-hmm. dialogue. Yeah. There's uh, references to exact places, to exact people. 
uh, to situations that, uh, you know, we can kind of point to right. a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, for example, Egypt becoming a powerhouse and storing grain for when there sure. was drought. So like that stuff actually happened. Right. We, we can read about it. So uh, the, the style of writing changes there in uh, chapter 12, and that carries all the way through chapter 50. And the main thing through these chapters is about the covenant, uh, what's the purpose of the covenant? How does it work? And what do these first Israelites, these Hebrew people, what do they do with it? Uh, and so you kind of have these different sequences that go through it. Yeah. Uh, so in the patriarchal histories, then we begin with some characters that are extremely familiar to us. To us, and these are people who are the patriarchs, especially of the Jewish people, but probably of like we talked about the three Abrahamic religions, which would be Judaism and Christianity and Islam. So they're important characters, and Abram and his wife Sarai, because that was their names originally, came out of the land of Ur, which would have been the Sumerian people. So it goes back a long time, but again, we're starting to talk about a city that we've actually, this, the archaeologists have found Ur. They know that this is a real city, and that these you know people were at least representatives, if not actual real people themselves. And so they then develop a relationship with God that, as you were saying, starts to talk about a covenant with God where... Abraham is presented as having a personal relationship with God. And we see how that then continues through his ancestry um, and through his descendants with a covenant that he makes with God, which then goes to his uh, son Isaac. Mm -hmm. And then Isaac has his sons Jacob and Esau. So we start to, again, get these stories about their history and about their beginning to form their culture and their people. One thing you'll notice is that uh, Abraham has a very large narrative. Uh, and Abraham's name changes, right? It's Abram, then it's Abraham. That's right, yeah. And Sarah and, uh, Sarah and Sarah. Uh, Isaac doesn't get a lot of attention. This is true. I, Isaac's definitely the middle mm-hmm. patriarch, if we were going to say it's comparable to middle children. Yeah. Uh, and then you get Jacob, and Jacob also has a name change. Mm-hmm. Also, he has a very long story. Yeah. Uh, and Jacob's name change is important. Yes, that is. Because Jacob becomes... Israel. And I do think it's important to go back a little and, and mention the fact that uh, Abraham does have another son, Ishmael, because yeah. I know that the Muslim people feel that that is their patriarch. And so that's another line Te- that it goes technically into. Technically, Abraham's that, firstborn. Yeah, technically right. he is. So we may not go into that so much, but I do think it's important sure. to point that out. It, well, and then uh, once you get Jacob, you know, Jacob starts around Genesis mid twenties. Uh, and Isaac's still a part of the narrative there a little bit. And Isaac uh, eventually kind of fades away from the narrative. Then he dies. Jacob's going to run almost to the end of Genesis. Yeah, he does. Now the focus will shift to his son, Joseph. And that's where you start getting, uh, Egyptian, uh, components to the story. So Mm -hmm. you can kind of see, Oh, this is setting up how Exodus is going to happen. Yeah. Um, but Jacob's going to be a prime character. And I don't think people often recognize that his name is changed to Israel. We still refer to Israel. So when you say the people of Israel, in a way, you're saying the people of Jacob. Right. So Jacob is definitely uh, a central character. Throughout the rest of Genesis, every now and then you get a story that uh, kind of interposes itself and kind of shoots off to the side, um, like its own sort of episode that gets woven in. 
Um, but that's kind of the bulk of what's going to happen. You're going to have this primordial history and then Abraham and mm-hmm. his descendants all the way through Jacob to his sons. Blessing happens where they're told about the land um, and, and who gets what. And then the book ends mm-hmm. and we know that uh, Israel is in Egypt. What's going to happen next? And it sets right. up, it sets up Exodus. Now we still have some things that we have to handle here and, I'd like I'd like us to start uh, with looking at the Hebrew scriptures just in general. How do we need to approach a book like Genesis? I think it's really important when approaching any kind of text um, to set it in its cultural context, to understand the people who were writing the stories, the people who would have been hearing the stories, what they would have thought when they heard them, the the symbols and things that they would have recognized that maybe would seem strange to us or that we don't catch because they're not part of our culture. Um, and, And so that we can, and also remember that anytime we look at these stories, we don't want to look at them through our 21st century lens of this is science, this is history. We think like that. That wasn't necessarily their point, yeah. you know, in describing the beginning of things. They weren't saying, I'm going to sit down and talk about how the universe began. Their mind was more, how did our God create the world that is separate from the way the cultures around there say that God created the world? Right. And so those are important details to keep in mind. Well, and, and what you're describing there is uh, people refer to this as an author-oriented approach versus okay. a reader-oriented approach. Mm-hmm. I'm very fond of the author-oriented approach. I also don't think we can escape completely a reader-oriented approach. So an author-oriented approach is what you just said. We start from why did they write this down? What were the, when those first readers or the first hearers of the story, what did they understand? We try, we try to kind of empathize with them and then let that influence how we understand the narrative. A reader-oriented approach says, how do I understand this? How do I interact mm-hmm. with that? And listen, that, that can be beautiful and that can lead to really good insights sure. and it's still valuable. Uh, you just have to be more careful with it. And I think mm-hmm. there's something uh, humbling and profound about going, I need, to, I need to put myself in their shoes. What's going on in this story? How can I understand that better and then transpose that to, so what do I do with it today? Yeah, I think it deepens your understanding of it in order to understand those things. I mean, you could simply read it as a story or you can read it as saying, this is what it meant to them. This is what it can mean to me. I do think another thing that's important to keep in mind is that these writings aren't any kind of new inventions. Um, They didn't just spring out of some kind of empty sociological space, but they were created and influenced by the surrounding cultures around them. So when we consider any writing, we need to place before us that cultural context and the influence that would be surrounding the authors then. Yeah, so not only... Is Genesis not written to our sociological context? Right. It's written to its own very specific one. So we have some work to do. Uh, at least we should try to do. You don't have to take the author-oriented approach. But with the Bible in general, I've always found it much more fruitful. Uh, but that's where we run into that problem with, you know, we read Genesis and we go, well, the science is wrong. No, the history is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't concerned about that. Yeah. Right. You know, and I find it fascinating that 
you know, we still love Plato and Aristotle, and they were actually trying to give a physical and metaphysical description of the universe that was really wrong. <laughs> this is true. And we still go, but those guys are so smart. Well, so <laughs> exactly. here's here's the the Jewish tradition not trying to do those things, uh, but we go ah no that so therefore all of the Bible is terrible. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and and if you do take that approach, you do run into that problem where. Uh, you have to either concede that the Bible is wrong uh, or you have to try to defend something irrationally. And here's the deal. Uh, Genesis was not read in that way until around uh, the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And again, it was an argument against Enlightenment scientists and philosophers trying to say, no, our Bible's correct. But you can go back, you can read Origen, uh, you can read Plotinus. There, there's all of these folks who are saying, this isn't trying to answer that question. Right. Don't read it in that way. And one way I've, I've tried to articulate this is the Bible is not trying to tell us how things exist. It's trying to tell us why. Right. That's a much better approach to a text like Genesis. And, and you know, we brought up, nobody was sitting there taking notes at the origin of the, the, the cosmic reality of the universe. Right. Right, so we gotta we gotta try to find a different way to approach this, and uh, I think this is true with most of the text. You know, you, you can read it as history, you can read it as metaphor, or you can read it as story. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is not just true of the Bible. Like, think about how much American uh, history is actually story. Exactly. We because, all tell stories. Yes. We're, we're trying to figure out what do we do with this? Yeah. Not, not exactly what happened. Um, and, and that's how humans interact with stories. Sure. It's like historical fiction. It may not be exactly. But I think one of the best questions we can ask ourselves then is what is the best way then to view the mindset of the writers and the people? And there is a, a scholar. His name is Walter Brueggemann. And this is what he describes it as. He says it's, it's what he calls imaginative remembering. And by that he means it's a kind of a traditional process of retelling that what he says intends to create a rooted, lively world of meaning in which the listening generation can situate its own life. Mm. So in other words, it's the Hebrew Bible would be best read as these stories that are told in order to create a cultural identity and a memory, and especially for the Hebrew people and their relationship to their God. And you start there, and then can can science transpose itself in some way? Sure. Can Sometimes, history? Sure. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, theology? Sure. But those are all byproducts of the story. Right. Now, start with the story. And let that that inform. And by the way, just be prepared that there's a really good chance that Walter Brueggemann is going to be quoted a lot. Uh, I don't know that we've we've been forthright about this. Neither Amy or I are experts no. nor authorities. Uh, we're just trying to pass on information from experts and authorities and people who know this much better than us. Uh, if if Walter Brueggemann decided to go through Genesis and create a podcast uh, library of all of the books of the Bible, it'd be a lot better. <laughs> he chose to do that through books, which most people aren't going to read. So hopefully we can read the books and then tell you all. That's right. We'll do the dirty <laughs> stuff and we'll, we'll yeah. give it to you. So so that's got to be uh, the, the spirit in which we take into a book mm-hmm. like uh, Genesis. So we've looked at the, the contents of Genesis, and we've, we've kind of opened up this angle at the stories trying to tell us something specific, and it comes from this cultural context. But now we need to look at 
why the story called Genesis even exists in the first place. And so uh, in, in Hebrew, the actual name is Bereshit, which interesting way to translate that is just when first, because that's just the opening word of uh, the book itself. Um, in Greek, that's where we get the name Genesis, and that comes from the Septuagint, and that means birth or origin. So what is going on with this book, and uh, who was it written for, why was it written, and if we can see some of these details, it starts making uh, our, our work of reading the text itself a little bit more uh, informed. So what's going on with, with Genesis? Who was it written for and why? Yeah, I think at this point it might be a good idea to maybe have a short history lesson about what happened with the Jewish people at that time. Um, we know that familiar with the idea of the 12 tribes of Israel were somehow around about the 900s, they had some internal strife. And I believe it was after Solomon died and his son was kind of a jerk. And so there was some problems between the two people and they split so that you had the 10 tribe nation of Israel to the north and then the two tribe nation of Judah to the south. What happened around the 700s then is that Assyria came in, destroyed that 10, time, 10 tribe nation of Israel sacked their cities, took the people captive, and they were assimilated into that Assyrian culture and so that they became, that they didn't even exist anymore. So a couple hundred years later, when the same thing kind of happened with the Judean people, only in this case it was the Babylonians came in, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, burned down the temple, and took a major part of them into exile. So here they are now in this exile to Babylon. And they had seen what had happened to their northern neighbors, to their northern uh, mm -hmm. people. And so they were afraid this might happen to them too. So they began to be careful about writing down some of the things that they'd already had, some oral traditions, some things that had already been written, but they began to put them into a more um, solidified form, yeah. in a more coherent form. In, in some ways, a book like Genesis or the Torah or those uh, Hebrew scriptures that we know today they, uh, at this point, maybe were compiled. So some stuff might have already been written. A lot of it, though, was oral. Yeah. And so for the first time, some of these were actually composed. Right. And, uh, you know, for, for a lot of people, it can be a little off-putting to go, you, you mean this wasn't written down right when these things happened? And we have to understand, just historically, uh, no, they weren't. Um but that also wasn't that important then and right. doesn't become important until uh, the Jewish people are threatened with possible extinction. Sure. So the writing actually comes out of that. And so then we have to kind of look at, well, then how was it compiled and composed? Because however that process worked, that led to what we have now, which is called Genesis. Right. So what can we say about, what do you think is important to note out about this sort of exile post-exile angle that influences the compilation and composition of Genesis? I think that it's important to make sure that we realize what a different kind of culture Babylon would have been to those Israelite people. Um, the stories in the mythology cycles that Babylon had were very, very enmeshed in their culture. And they gave them a picture of what the world was supposed to be like, and it gave them a picture of what Babylon looked like. The Jewish people, and we can start calling them Jewish people at this point, um, 
didn't want to be like that. They were trying to show how Yahweh was different from the Babylonian gods and goddesses and how their identity was different from the Babylonian identity. So they did these things in that place of exile in order to separate themselves at that point. Then when they come back to, oh, it's important to know that somewhere around 70 to 80 years later after they were taken into exile, Cyrus of Persian came in, um, conquered Babylon in its turn, and then let those people go back to their homeland. So anybody, not just the Judeans, but anybody who had been in exile to Babylon or, or had been under their influence was now allowed to go free. So they went back to Jerusalem. Now they're rebuilding Jerusalem. They're rebuilding their temple. And now this is their chance to kind of reform and reimagine what does our worship of Yahweh look like and how is that part of our national identity. And the composition of the text plays a large role within that as well. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking about the form of Genesis, well, a lot of its content shapes the contemporary setting in which they were. So it's not just a, a, a plain telling of creation and Abraham. They're comparing and contrasting to Babylon and Persia and these, these uh, empires and sociological realities that they're around. You also have the fact that this is made possible by technology. So right. the, the Institute of Writing has taken on a lot more shape since when those stories uh, supposedly happened. Uh, so that plays a role. And then you also have the fact that the composition makes a little bit more sense when you realize that not everybody could read. So you get some of these parts in Genesis especially, but all over the right. Hebrew scriptures where it's written in a way that's easily memorized. So what do we do with this, uh, the cultural component, the technological component, and, and still this oral slash written component that seems to be making its way into the text? Well, I think it's really, when you talk about the technology, there's a really interesting thing to make note of there. Um, Archaeologists and people who study these things have found that around that same time, a particular alphabetic script that was common in the day became standardized. They'd had writing before this. We, you know, writing has gone back way, way back into Sumerian times and cuneiform tablets. This was the point at which you actually maybe, at least in that context, had standardized alphabets, which made it easier not only to write down all kinds of different genres of um, liturgies, poetry, writings, history... It also made it easier for people to maybe learn those things. I'm not going to say that the common people learn to read, but certainly there would have been schools of scribes so that we are able now to have groups of people writing down the text, more people working on it, more people being able to do it in a way that other people are going to be able to utilize that. And then in a ceremonial context, it would be a case where as often happens in churches today even, where someone reads and there's a response, or there are certain common liturgies that are read at certain times. For example, at certain festivals, different particular sections then of the Torah are read. And so all that kind of thing is important for them to keep that identity and to keep that religion of Yahweh and the, and the worship of Yahweh in a sort of a coherent form. So it's interesting to me, what's amazing to me is that they took these stories from the Babylonian context and then actually kind of uh, reshaped them and transformed them into their own way of, of making it part of their cultural context. And Brueggemann, this Walter Brueggemann that we've been quoting a lot, he points it out the best. He says, the key issue in reading any of these texts, meaning Genesis and the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, 
is to see that the canonizing process of editing and traditioning has taken the old materials, meaning the Babylonian context, and transposed them into something of theological coherence. So it's not something that the Babylonians necessarily had in mind when they wrote down those myths, but it's something that then those Jewish leaders and those Jewish priests wrote down to help the people understand then their context and see how it related to their world. Yeah. And so, you, I mean, you mentioned this post-exilic time where the return to uh, Jerusalem has happened. And in the context of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the necessity of creating communal ways of interacting with these narratives was important. So they're creating that. And you also have to realize that the Jewish people are assisted by the enlarging uh, empires and the move towards globalization because they need standard writing forms and standard mm-hmm. economic practices that are dependent on writing. And the Jewish people kind of benefit from that. Absolutely. And they're able to make text uh, more standard for their whole tribes and nations. Um, so you see some of that going on. And I think what this moves us into is looking at what the role of Genesis was. One of the things that is is an interesting conversation to have is who wrote Genesis. Right. And we're kind of hinting here that it's a little more complex than just figuring out the name of the author on the front of the book. Right. That doesn't really exist. Now, the tradition says that Moses wrote it. I'm going to take a stance here and say... Moses didn't actually write these things down in the time of Ezra Not and Nehemiah. All in one piece. Well, so, we'll, right. but when we talk about it's compiled and composed, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have been done by Moses. Now, right. uh, Jacob Milgram actually, and we when we get to Leviticus, this will become more evident. But talks about how the tradition of Moses was what was important, and so when it says, you know, these are the words of Moses. It's not necessarily because Moses sat down with, uh, you know, pen and paper, which they didn't have, and write these things. It's that these these words are spoken in the tradition of Moses and, and almost like a uh, pseudonym where by you claiming uh, the authority of someone, it gets, it gets accepted more easily. Folks did this with Paul in the New Testament as well. So I am willing to say, yeah, this is written in the tradition of Moses and, and accepting that uh, authorship is still important. It doesn't mean we're saying he was the blatant person who compiled and composed all of these things post-exile, right? Right. So this leads us to, uh, you know, accepting Moses as author as a way to inform how we view the text. But when we're talking about actual authorship, this is where it comes uh, brings us to the idea of what's called the documentary hypothesis. And uh, for those of you uh, who have been around exegeting the Hebrew scriptures for a while, you already know this. Um, and for some people, it can, it can seem sacrosanct that this would even be a thing. But it actually, if, if, you can, if you can give a certain air of authority to a vast number of people in the threat of extinction, writing and collecting these narratives for their um, their tribal identity in order to persevere and continue the tradition, then it actually makes it quite beautiful. 
of all the ways this, this, this comes into play throughout the text. And in Genesis, it's really important because there are a lot of divergent sources who kind of weave the narrative together. And if you can pay attention to which one is by whom and com- comes from which tradition, it actually helps you appreciate the text more. I think so. Mm-hmm. So going along with what you're talking about here with this different authorship, it's really interesting to me. Um, scholars, in particular this Walter Brueggemann that we speak of, developed a theory they call the documentary hypothesis. And what it is is that there were perhaps four, there were possibly more, but four that we can really pinpoint sources. They may have been individual authors or they may have been, like I was saying, schools of thought or schools of scribes who wrote down these stories in Genesis in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the Torah. And they each have their own focus, which is the way the scholars are able to figure out who wrote what. So starting with Genesis, for example, in chapter 1, we have that first creation story. And most people think that that was written down by what they call the P or the priestly source. And the reason they call them that is because they were thinking these were people who were working as priests in the temple. And their focus then, because of that, was very much on Uh, ceremonial things, liturgy. It was very um, organized. It was very orderly. And they like lists and they like things to be somewhat remote and and set down in a particular way. And when we get into Genesis 1 through C, we'll see that a little bit more. The second source and probably the major source of those first five books is what they call the Yahweh source. It actually, or the J, and so they call it the J source, but that's just because in German, Yahweh starts with a J. That's, you know, the way they pronounce their J. So it's the J source. And they definitely have a more sophisticated style. In this particular way of writing, you'll find that they speak of God as being much more anthropomorphic. God um, or Yahweh will interact with humans, speak to humans, make deals with humans, even kind of argue with humans, for example, with Abraham. And that's kind of neat. And they use that name Yahweh, which is why they call them the Yahweh source. So it's, it's, it's like, this is a, they're, I, they're much more of storytellers, much more narrative. And they had a major part in that. Then the third source is what they call the Elohim source. And they use the name Elohim. Um, that particular source, they're not quite so sure. Some scholars even say maybe they didn't exist, but others can say, no, we can point out a place where there were these other groups of people who are maybe adding to the priestly source because they were closer to that. And they were people who were more, uh, God is more remote. This is how the scholars find those. You will find that anytime we're talking about someone who interacts with Yahweh in a dream, for example, like Jacob, or Um, interacts by angels coming as messengers. So God is not as likely to speak to humans in a more direct way. And then the fourth one is called the Deuteronomistic Historian. I hope I can say that well. And basically that person didn't have anything to do with Genesis. They mostly wrote down the book of Deuteronomy, which we will eventually get to. So that's what those four sources were. So basically you have these various layers of oral tradition that span a lot of time and you know, it does, like you said, I think it is important to go. These weren't like four specific people. These were traditions. They, right. they, these were schools. And uh, the easiest way to think about this is the way that they approach God, specifically the name of God. So just Yahweh, Yahweh versus Elohist. So J versus E. You're seeing different names used for God within that. Um, 
one thing that I think is important about the the priestly source that you, you mentioned about um, Genesis chapter one is the kind of order and centralization that they promote. So they they kind of right. that's the that's the school of thought that has the most overt agenda. Yeah. You know, so Genesis one actually becomes a depiction of the temple and how the temple should be ordered. And, yes, indeed. Um, and these all these all two kind of have different time frames that they're working that they're working from. Um, uh, one thing that's tricky with the priestly source, however, that kind of makes it combine with the Elohis is that they both use the same name for God. Um, and so figuring out, was that an E or was that a P can be a little bit tricky. Um, and again, the, yeah, the Deuteronomist doesn't show up really in, in, in Genesis, Genesis no. at all. So you've got, you've got these sources that are working together. And like I said, on the front end, you might go, that's blasphemy. You know, that, that's not, that's not how this works. Don't, don't miss the really beautiful component of the Bible, which is how the human role coordinates with this divine narrative to set that in, in real times and places and histories for us to be a part of. So if you, if your first uh, response to this information is to go like, that's of Satan or something like that. I don't know what people say. Yeah. Uh, Try to look past that and go, what's the beautiful thing that this offers? What What's the helpful thing that this offers? And still hold next to that, that, yeah, this is the tradition of Moses, right? It, considering the span of time that we're talking with this compilation and composition, yeah, we're not talking about something very literal in that regard, but to still uphold the tra- tradition of Moses as author and accord it with that, also says something beautiful about the tradition itself. They didn't want to detach from from the roots, right. and I think that's I think that's important. Um, so once we deal with authorship, another thing that I think is uh, worth mentioning because I think it's just something that we assume um, so much is why is Genesis first? If it wasn't compiled and composed until later, and and again I work from a perspective that. Uh, the prophetic narratives, especially like Isaiah, Jeremiah, were the most contemporary when they were written. All right, yeah. so those are probably written closer to the actual person than most of the books of the Bible. Uh, so why didn't they? Why didn't they compose the the Hebrew scriptures according to um, their their chronological written date? Why did they put Genesis first? The easy answer is because they were putting the narrative in chronological order. And I think that works. I, I have no qualms with that. I think there's a, a, a larger reason within the motif of the story, though. And that's that Exodus becomes the central narrative for Israel. So mm-hmm. again, functioning from the, the prophetic pronouncement of a future hope, uh, this anticipated future of Israel and what's going to happen f- with all of creation... Exodus becomes the defining narrative for that. Mm-hmm. Well, how did we get to Exodus? So Genesis sort of acts as the prelude. Yes, definitely. And what it does is you get the covenant with with uh, Abraham and Sarah, and it foreshadows what's going to be happening and how that's going to uh, create the foundation for the future hope that is to come. And so you've got this part of uh, reordering the myths from the surrounding cultures, and that's there's kind of a, 
intentional contrast that's happening. It's a theological statement about who the God of all creation is. So it's, it's giving a lot of the information that's going to help that prophetic pronouncement be realized. There's also a sense that putting this book first sort of sets the standard for how Israel needs to view themselves. So on one hand, you get some narratives within Genesis where it gives justification for their right to the land right, and for their legitimacy as a tribe, because this goes all the way back to Abraham. Mm-hmm. It, it also is really important for people who are surviving uh, being conquered and surviving exile that they need to see themselves as a first-rated tribe with a very cosmic goal. Right. All of that gets set up in Genesis. So it's placed first in Torah because it sets the stage for this larger narrative of Israel's history, for the covenant, for Exodus, for the prophets, for exile. And it also answers some really important questions for them, right? How is the world supposed to function? You know, mm-hmm. Chaos versus order. Who are we as a people? Where do we come from? Why do we experience God the way we do? This kind of gives that foundational narrative that's going to set up everything else. So in some ways, Genesis isn't that important, right? In some ways, it's the most important book. Yeah. So you kind of have to have to see its role within that larger scheme. And that's why that's why it's first. It sets all of that up. The, the contrast, though, with uh, various empires, tribes, cultures, etc., we really have to see that on the forefront. And this part is going to be a little bit of uh, a concept that needs to be taken with all of the Hebrew scriptures. This is not just about Genesis, but it's very, and probably most obvious in Genesis. And we had mentioned earlier that, you know, we talked about the Enuma, Elish, and some of these influences, and we said, we'll we'll, we'll get to that. And... uh, I wanted to make a point about how Genesis and its composition via this tradition over centuries that's then written down, how it interacts with these various cultures. And this is one of those things that if you don't pay attention to this, you're kind of left with questions. At worst, you're left with making stuff up mm-hmm. and Always trying bad. to trying to find answers that hey, you don't, don't need to go looking that hard for. Um, if you do see this, it makes some things pop for you as you read the text. And hopefully we'll be able to capture when some of these are happening when we go chapter by chapter. But the way that Israel is influenced and how it responds to that is not Israel. So Israel doesn't, for example, just take the Enuma Elish and repeat it. Right. They're influenced by it because that's kind of the media of the day. But what they do is they take it and they mess with it. So there's uh, five different ways that this happens throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And I'll just list them briefly. The first is borrowing. So when they have direct access to a certain tradition or you know, piece of literature itself, and then they adapt it for their own tradition. So there's not a whole lot of animosity there. It's actually a very normal sociological mm-hmm. thing. The next one is polemics where they are borrowing, but then they're also reacting against it. So they're kind of trying to disprove uh, whatever that initial tradition from some pagan neighbor said. Right. Um, then you get actual countertext, where it's going to look the same, 
but they're giving an alternative perspective. So creation stories be an example of this. Uh, the sun and the moon aren't gods. They were created by uh, the one transcendent being who brought the whole world into existence. Yeah. Another one that's less uh, antagonistic is echoes. And this one almost seems like it's not very intentional. It's just so part of mainstream consciousness that they're just using some of these phrases or, 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 or ideas. Um, an example of this would be how uh, the name of the literature is Bereshit, which is just the first words of the text itself, well, that's just something you did. What right. do you? What do we call this? Well, what's the first word? Everybody did that back then with their ancient texts. Yeah, that's the name. Like when you say the name Enuma Elish, that just means went on high, which is the first. Which words. is just the first words of that Babylonian myth cycle. Yeah. So those are echoes. Uh, then you have diffusion, which is not in reference to a specific text like the Enuma Elish. This is a reaction against a particular culture, and a lot of Genesis is doing this. They're trying to. Uh, give offer a a alternative perspective to how the world viewed things during that time. So, uh, one way to think about a lot of what's going to happen in Genesis is uh, a phrase called ret, a, a retcon, which is used in the comic book world. And the idea behind this is you you take a narrative or an idea or a cultural perspective, and you begin making it sound like you're saying the exact same thing, but then you just mm-hmm. change something which drastically alters how you view that. So yeah. you're going to see this within creation. You're going to see this within uh, Moses's narrative. You're going to see some of this with uh, Jacob, with Joseph. So uh, that that's a way to kind of see how they're interacting with these different cultures. Yeah, to me it's like the Frozen story, which is what I'm familiar with, where you have this specific fairy tale motif. It's always, you know... There's a girl has some kind of a problem, needs the Prince Charming to come along. Romantic love is always the true love. True love solves the problem, and it's always this love between man and woman. In the Frozen story, it's the love for her sister. And so we're going along expecting it to be, I don't remember the young man's name, but expecting it to be the one guy, the one that she kind of likes, and then all of a sudden, no, that didn't work. It's not that love. What love is it? It's her love for her sister. So that family love can also be true love. And it was kind of a new idea that we don't usually see in a fairy tale motif. I'm actually uh, quite surprised that you've seen Frozen. But yes, that is that is actually a really good example of some of the stuff that's going on in Genesis. So I think that gives us a good overview of what this book is, how it works, and how we should approach it as we continue to move on. So seeing that there's a connection to the prophets and the anticipated future hope by giving an ideological and teleological vision for Israel's identity and the covenant, that's super important. Uh, To answer some of the questions of why is the world this way? How are we supposed to act? Who are we as Israel, especially especially in that post-exilic context? Super important for the book of Genesis. And then this intentional demythologizing of their neighbors. All of it is to kind of set the foundation for who Israel is supposed to be by, by giving that narrative of their existence, of the existence of the world, and then what they should be doing as the story moves on. So that's what's going on with this book. Now that we've handled all of this, we're going to start getting into... What are the contents of this book? So next episode, we'll dive into Genesis 1 through 3.